Invest in your leadership and business skills at AUA 2023 with the new AUA Institute for Leadership and Business Track. Join the Institute at the AUA annual meeting in Chicago for an opportunity to grow your leadership and business skills. The new ILB track features seven courses, offering a combined total of 16 hours of programming that will enhance your business acumen, activate your interest in business and finance, and inspire you to become a leader in your practice and the field. To accommodate the robust schedule of AUA 2023, each of the seven live courses will be recorded for access on demand after annual meeting. Resident discounts are available. Visit auanet.org forward slash AUA2023 to learn more and add the ILB track to your registration. The following activity is brought to you by the American Neurological Association. Good afternoon, my name is Jay Raman and I am uh, chair of the AUA's Office of Education and Professor of Urology at Penn State Health. It's my pleasure to host another one of our Office of Educational podcast series with this specific podcast focusing on transitional care for the pediatric patient. Um, it's my pleasure to host for this podcast, Dr. Sean Elliott. Uh, Dr. Elliott is the Cloverfields Professor and Vice Chair of Clinical Affairs in the Department of Urology at the University of Minnesota. He is a fellowship-trained uh, genital urinary trauma and reconstructive specialist, having come through uh, the University of California in San Francisco. And his practice really spans spans the full spectrum of GU reconstruction, but really relevant to today's podcast is uh, he has spent a lot of time in the care or the long-term care of adults who have congenital urological problems uh, or what we're calling transitional care and transitional urology. Uh, he's uh, very well known in our field, um, has uh, served in various different organizations, uh, as well as a member of our exam committee and has really founded two multi-institutional research collaborations, uh, both in reconstructive uh, urology as well as a neurogenic bladder. So uh, first of all, Sean, uh, really appreciate you taking some time to join us. Uh, I didn't want to go through your full list of accolades because that could probably be a 30-minute podcast in and of itself, but I really do appreciate somebody of your uh, thoughtfulness joining us uh, here today. Thanks, Jay. I, um, I'm really happy that the AUA has chosen to feature this topic. It's uh, something near and dear to my heart, and it's great to see it receiving the press. Yeah, no, I, I think it's really great because, I mean, this, I think this whole podcast dovetails on an issue that is, I think, central to almost all urologic practices. And, and obviously, um, what I think is so neat about it is, um, Many people think about pediatric urology, and obviously many of us that are in big academic medical centers have pediatric urologists that focus in that realm. And then, you know, the question is really what happens as these pediatric patients over time um, move into sort of the adult uh, and beyond. And so I think this is really going to be highly relevant for, you know, all of us that, that frankly, see urologic patients all the time. So I'm going to start really the, the 20,000 foot view question is um, just give us a sense of these terms. Like what, what does transitional urology really mean to you? What is 
adult congenital urology? Are they the same? Are they different? Um, and that may just help our, our listeners as we kind of move through this program of using some of these terms. Yeah, I think that question is spot on. Uh, transitional urology means to me that it's the urologic care of patients as they transition from the pediatric provider to the adult provider. And I see that as one phase of their total journey. Um, personally, I like the term adult congenital urology um, because it, it speaks to the fact that this is going to be a lifelong process. You can only be in transition for so long. And then at some point you've come into the adult world and we will take care of these patients from the time they're 15 till 50 or further. So uh, I, I really do like adult congenital urology, but it seems transitional urology has caught on. And so that, that's often what's used. And so maybe talk to us a little bit about, you know, as somebody like yourself that uh, really has a, a, a practice of this and a large practice, what are some of the, the challenges or maybe unique challenges that you see if you know, let's just call it transitional urology, but what, what do you really see as some of the unique challenges as you sort of care for this patient population? Yeah, you can think of them as some of the uh, healthcare system challenges, some of the social challenges, and then the surgical challenges. From a system standpoint, they're caught between the pediatric and adult medicine paradigms of care. Um, they might have transitioned to an adult urologist, but still be seeing a pediatric nephrologist. They might have a, a social worker who's been with them since childhood. And uh, uh, sometimes they move to an adult urologist located in a pediatric hospital or a pediatric urologist who's going over to an adult hospital to see them there. And so they're really caught between two worlds and honestly, there's a lot about pediatric care and adult care that are different um, from the way the hospitals look to the way that to the way that the nurses interact with the patients. And so for them to flip back and forth between that is a challenge. Uh, that's so that's one unique challenge to transitional urology. Another would be that they are starting to establish independence in healthcare decisions and their self-care. I mean, this is something that everybody goes through as they move to adulthood but it can be a little bit stunted or delayed in people with congenital urologic conditions. And um, some of them actually have what we call, it, the people with spina bifida have executive functioning problems, meaning that they specifically, regardless of their IQ, they actually have a specific problem with uh, uh, ordering priorities. And so self-management of their disease, independent of their IQ is a particular challenge. And uh, so as they start to take on responsibility for their health care, uh, we need to work with them to help prioritize all of their self-cares at home. And as they uh, move away from their parents doing that, you have to think about how are you going to make sure that those things still get done. Uh, and then lastly, there's a lot of anatomic uh, considerations. Um, you know, one of the things that makes pediatric urology fascinating is these alterations in anatomy. But then when they become adults, they have whatever their anatomy alterations were that they were born with, plus the anatomy alterations that were done from previous surgery. And then on top of that, all of the fun things that happen with adulthood, like obesity mm -hmm. and um, those kinds of things that make surgery more challenging. So 
I'm going to ask you about maybe, you know, a few different conditions and, and a few different sort of clinical states and, and maybe have you talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on it and, 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 you know, how you approach these patients, but I'm going to start with spina bifida. I, I practice in central Pennsylvania. We have, um, a fairly large spina bifida population. Maybe it's just related to referral base, just because we're sort of the only sort of pediatric uh, and comprehensive care hospital, probably within about 80 or 90 miles. But but why does spina bifida really seem to to dominate when you talk about this sort of transitional urology landscape? What are some thoughts on that? Well, it is actually not the most common of all the adult congenital urology problems we take care of, but it is one of the more severe. Uh, if you think about it, obviously hypospadias is much more common. Cerebral palsy is actually several fold, fold more common. Um, spina bifida, there's about 1,000 live births of spina bifida each year. And for something like cerebral palsy, you see more like um, uh, 10 times that, like 10,000 births per year. But spina bifida so severely impacts the urinary tract and, and unfortunately the kidneys too in some cases that uh, it, it plays a large role in urology and, and, and has a high visibility. Um, it, um, it also dominates the landscape because they undergo rather complicated urinary tract reconstruction. Um, you know, posterior urethral valves has severe urologic impacts, but they oftentimes, other than a valve ablation, don't undergo a ton of reconstruction as kids, uh, whereas the spina bifida patients do between the augments and the cath channels, and all of those might need touch-up surgery as adults. And um, the, the anatomic challenges of revising those surgeries when they get to adulthood is particularly difficult for spina bifida. Uh, they tend to have, um, you know, tough things like uh, uh, having to do a revision of a bladder augment and metrophenoff in adulthood is tough uh, in and of itself. But then you add on all the VP shunt adhesions, and you add on the obesity and the uh, obstructive sleep apnea and other problems that come with spina bifida in adulthood. And so I, I think that's why it dominates the transitional urology landscape. Now, you, you were mentioning, just as, as you sort of talked about spina bifida, you did mention that indeed, um, it's really not quite as common as some of the other urologic conditions. And, and you did mention cerebral palsy uh, as one of them. And I thought that was interesting because I, you know, frankly, I, I didn't really think about that as a, a type of congenital urologic condition. So maybe just sort of tell me and maybe just sort of share with our listeners, what, what are your thoughts on that? And, and why did you sort of mention that as, as part of this discussion here? Well, I have some, um, well, a, a good personal experience with cerebral palsy in that the clinic I work at is a center of excellence for cerebral palsy care. So I manage a large population of people with CP. Um, you're right that we don't commonly think of it amongst the adult or, or any of the congenital urologic conditions. Obviously, cerebral palsy being a neonatal uh, cortical brain injury uh, type of disease, it's not, it's not congenital in the sense that it's not inherited. It's not 
a urinary tract problem in that it's a cortical brain problem, but it does have sequelae in the urinary tract. Um, if you look at urodynamic studies of children, they usually present with detrusor overactivity in childhood, and it can usually be managed medically, so it doesn't kind of raise to the level of recognition amongst the pediatric urologists. But the motor spasticity and the upper motor neuron problems characteristic of cerebral palsy continue to intensify through adulthood mm -hmm. so that by the time they're adults, those with the more severe forms of cerebral palsy uh, will start to have problems with urinary retention due to what we call pseudodysynergia, which is spasticity of the external sphincter, just like they have spasticity of their arms and legs um, from the CP, they will also develop spasticity of the pelvic floor, causing constipation and urinary retention. And those sorts of motor spasticity problems get worse and worse throughout life, uh, throughout their lifespan. And so their arm and leg contractures will get worse in adulthood. And so too will their urinary retention and then on top of the urinary retention, they have an upper motor neuron bladder because it's a cortical injury that they've suffered. And so you've got an outlet obstruction plus a high pressure bladder. And as we all know from spinal cord injury and spina bifida, that can be a recipe for uh, kidney damage. And so managing uh, people with more advanced forms of CP in a urology clinic is often uh, pretty important. And uh, unfortunately, putting them on CIC is almost impossible. Their pseudodysynergia is so tight that it's, uh, it feels like a stricture if you start to hmm. try to cath them. And so uh, I'm not going to go into all the details of how we manage them, but we do try to avoid CIC and sometimes uh, uh, either letting them be in retention and just monitoring their kidney function for hydronephrosis or if they need to be on CIC creating a metrophin off is a better option. Hmm. So let's, um, I, I want to come back in a little bit and I do want to talk a little bit about spina bifida and some of the bowel related challenges, but I did want to talk first before I got to that, just about maybe a few other conditions that um, we can see. So one of them is certainly extrophy, which um, obviously is, is, you know, quite well known in the pediatric urology world in the realm, especially at centers of excellence. But maybe talk to us a little bit about what do we see in these transitional care patients? And then certainly as they move into the adult realm, what do we see with these extrophy patients? And, and, and what should we be prepared for with regards to testing or clinical scenarios where um, it would be important to recognize that they have this history? Yes, yeah, as, as you remember, the the uh, presentation of extrophy is that the bladder will be small and underdeveloped. The uh, female urethra will be externally facing, and the prostatic urethra in boys will be externally facing. And all of those are closed in childhood, but they'll have an incompetent sphincter mechanism. In some cases, the bladder neck can be reconstructed and they can achieve continence and they'll be on intermittent cathing, or some of them will even void spontaneously. Um, some of them will have gotten a bladder augment in childhood, but many will not. 
as they come into adulthood, it can be important to do urodynamics uh, to check to see if their bladder function has changed, especially if they present with any new lower urinary tract symptoms, uh, including urinary tract infections. Uh, some of the, uh, what, one really unique situation where urology can get involved is uh, pregnancy in women with, um, with extra fee uh, will really put some strain on the pelvic floor, which is underdeveloped in people with extra fee. And so all women with extra fee are going to be at some risk of pelvic organ prolapse uh, as they age into adulthood. But especially those who've been pregnant will be at higher risk for pelvic organ prolapse. Because of the way the pelvic floor was reconstructed in childhood, it can be really quite impossible for them to deliver by vaginal delivery. So C-section is universal, really, amongst uh, women with extrophy. Um, and uh, for those who do develop pelvic organ prolapse, reconstructing their pelvic organ prolapse is going to require someone who's an expert at doing that, as well as uh, someone who has a lot of experience doing complex bladder reconstructive surgery. So you, you talked a little bit about um, um, pregnancy when you're looking at this extra fee um, uh, patient population, maybe more, even more broadly, if, if you could take us back a little bit and you talked a little bit about the concept of C-section, but, but talk a little bit about just in general for the, for the general urologist who is seeing a, a pregnant woman who is having, uh, who has a history of some sort of congenital urological condition. What are the sort of things that general urologists and all of us, frankly, should be thinking about and what should we counseling, be counseling these patients regarding? Well, some of these conditions are going to end up with a C-section rather than a vaginal delivery. Uh, I mentioned that in extra feed or pelvic floor has been reconstructed and it'll be hard for them to deliver through the vaginal canal, but also in spina bifida, uh, the patients don't have uh, muscle tone in the lower abdomen. So doing a valsalva to be able to uh, do a vaginal delivery is challenging. So they will frequently end up with a C-section. So if they've had some sort of bladder reconstructive surgery, augment or metrophenoff, it's going to be really critical that urology be involved in that C-section. Um, luckily, the uterus is usually so large uh, at the time of delivery that it pushes the augment down out of the way. Mm. And so I'm always present when one of my patients is undergoing a delivery, but nine times out of 10, it's very straightforward. As mm. long as you just put a catheter in the metrophenoff to protect that, and then uh, the augment is usually pushed out of the way. Um, occasionally due to, due to adhesions or whatnot, it can be a real challenge. Um, Speaking of the metrophenoff, the other thing that can happen is throughout pregnancy, cathing can become more and more difficult as the angle of the metrophenoff changes as the uterus enlarges. So don't be afraid to just leave an indwelling catheter in the metrophenoff for the yeah. last few months of pregnancy if cathing is becoming difficult. Um, incontinence in women in advanced pregnancy is, is not uncommon but especially common amongst people with congenital urologic conditions. So 
forewarning them of that um, as the pressure on the bladder becomes more and more during the latter stages of pregnancy. UTI prevention is important. Uh, these patients, due to their bladder reconstruction and their intermittent caffeine, are all at increased risk for UTI, and so their OB is going to want to put them on oral prophylaxis. And then, of course, kidney stones. Um, women are at increased risk for uh, 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 hypercalciuria during pregnancy. And if you've got a patient who due to uh, urinary tract colonization with um, things like proteus uh, plus bowel in their urinary tract, they're at increased risk of kidney stones. That can be a recipe for um, perhaps having to intervene for kidney stones during pregnancy. And and just practically speaking, when you, when you have some of these patients who have a Mitrofenoff and obviously are having more difficulty catheterizing, and you mentioned leaving an indwelling catheter in place, do you have any sort of recommendation on, you know, the size of a catheter that's going to be through this channel? I mean, is smaller, 12, 14, or is it really just sort of patient-specific? Any general guidelines that you would have? That's a good question. Um, you know, first, I would say before jumping to the indwelling fully, try uh, changing the type of catheter they're using. So if they've been using a straight cath, can a CUDE negotiate the new curve in their Mitrofenov and keep them off of a Foley for as long as possible? When they do have to go to a Foley, I would agree with you. It's going to something smaller is good. What we're afraid of mostly is stretching out their detrusor tunnel, which is their continence mechanism. So putting in a large Foley is probably more likely to cause that. So yeah, I, I like something like a 12 or a 14. So what about, let, let's talk about um, boys, young boys, or I guess neonates who, who have posterior urethral valves. And, and obviously we, we, we know very much about the importance of having those addressed when they're young. And, and you know, obviously in, in a lot of testing scenarios, you get the, the classic case of the young children and the young boy and management of the, you know, the hydronary nephrosis and the distended bladder. But now let's go forward. What, what, what do we do and how do these children that have posterior urethral valves, how do they present in adulthood? And, and maybe I'll even ask you, do, do you need to um, survey or, or uh, scope these patients based upon your findings to ensure that there's no uh, residual or recurrent tissue there? Yeah, I haven't scoped them on a routine basis to look for residual valve or stricture as a result of the ablation. Um, and my personal experience with valves is limited to probably a dozen or so adult men. Um, but I can say from the literature that the bladder will change throughout their lifespan and it is important to survey their bladder emptying ability, uh, especially as they uh, age into adulthood. Um, a lot of them may have been able to empty their bladder okay in childhood, but as the, as the polyuria that's typical of uh, extrophy ends up leading to larger and larger bladders, they can get to a situation where they have incomplete bladder emptying. So staying on top of perhaps double voiding or sometimes leaving a catheter in the bladder overnight to make sure that they're not going 
you know, eight hours without voiding, especially when they make large amounts of urine. These kinds of things can help stave off the dreaded uh, kidney failure that can happen. Um, fully a third of all the transplants that posterior urethral valve people get are going to be after age 17. So that just goes to show you that there are that there is situations where continued damage does occur into adulthood. So, you know, I, I as we were moving through this, I thought to myself a few scenarios um, and, you know, I thought about them sort of in the realm of spina bifida, but it's probably true for really any condition. But I, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about scenarios that many of us face um, in many of these patients who have congenital urologic issues. And, I, you know, as I said, we have a big spina bifida practice. So I guess I think to myself a little bit with those patients. But I guess maybe the first practical question for you is for these patients that have a history of bladder augmentation, do you have some sort of algorithm or recommendations on how you survey these patients, both regards to functional capacity and then also with imaging and or um, visualization with this, you know, this concept of is there a real risk of, you know, malignant transformation of the bowel segment? Any just sort of practical considerations when you have this bowel, bowel interposed into the, the bladder or, or, the, or the urinary tract? Uh it would be impossible to manage my population of spina bifida patients without APPs who partner with me to do this. So as a result, you spoke about um, algorithms or protocols. I, I live off of algorithms and protocols because if I had to make the judgment call every time about who should we scope and who should get urodynamics, I would never be in the operating room because I'd be managing all of these patients in clinics. So I have algorithms and protocols and they're all uh, printed for the APPs and they do an awesome job of managing these patients day to day. And the protocols really help them be independent caregivers. Um, the uh, So I let's talk about someone with a bladder augment and their risk of cancer first. Um, they do have an increased risk of malignancy if we talk about small bowel augments. Mm -hmm. They have an increased risk of malignancy compared to the uh, general population. That increased risk of malignancy is actually similar to unaugmented people with neurogenic bladder. There may just be an inflammatory state of having neurogenic bladder. Um, the augment may add to that, but it's hard to perceive a difference between people with and without an augment. They're both at increased risk compared to the general population from having a neurogenic bladder. That increased risk is not increased enough to warrant surveillance cystoscopy to look for bladder tumors in people with a small bowel augment. In fact, surveillance leads, leads to more false positives than true positives and that ends up leading to unnecessary testing. So I do not do surveillance cystoscopy in people with small bowel augments. What I do for people with large bowel augments is do surveillance cystoscopy based on the colonoscopy guidelines. So I will start doing a cystoscopy to look for colon cancer once they're over 45. Hmm. Um, you had asked about other protocols. Um, I do not do surveillance urodynamics in adults with neurogenic bladder. 
Um, and uh, when I do get Eurodynamics, it's uh, either at the time when they transition from pediatrics to adult care, just so I have a baseline study, or I'll do Eurodynamics when something about their clinical condition speaks to a change. And those things that I look for are new hydronephrosis, um, three or more UTIs in a year, or new lower urinary tract symptoms that are bothersome to the patient. So if they have any of those three things, I will get urodynamics. My annual surveillance is just a history and physical and a renal bladder ultrasound. If they're gonna have bladder stones, we'll see it on the bladder portion of the ultrasound. And if they have new hydronephrosis, we'll see that on the ultrasound. And those will be stimuli for getting a cystoscopy. No, that's great. Very, very practical. And and you're right. I think that the key here, which I really enjoyed you saying, was this concept of algorithms. Otherwise, every case becomes a one-off example, and and so it's it's very hard to have a standardized way. So that that's that's really valuable that you said that. Other. Um, sort of clinical scenario that I, I feel like we see a lot of that I'll ask you a little bit about is in these patients that have any type of continent diversion who have had a Mitrofenoff. Um, I'm going to ask you two sort of questions. One is um, many of them have sort of endourological issues associated with that, you know, a lot of stones um, and, and, you know, maybe management and that front, understanding you're not an endourologist by trade, but, but, you know, how you think about that problem. And then the related, I would ask you is, okay, what happens when maybe the Mitrofenoff strictures or the valve becomes incompetent and therefore the, the patient no longer has their continence mechanism? Um, how do you manage that scenario ranging everywhere from not major surgery, the simple stuff all the way to, hey, we've got to replace this. So maybe those two um, different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, so for the stones first, let, let's assume that for whatever reason, you can't treat their stone with a standard cystoscope through their urethra. Either they've had the bladder neck closed or they've had a sling or something. And so you're stuck managing it transabdominally. And in that case, um, if it's a tiny stone, um, I'll remove it through the Mitrofenoff. But I have a very low threshold to removing it percutaneously, um, kind of the same way you would do a percutaneous nephrolithotomy, um, because I really don't want to mess up the Mitrofenoff. Not to mention, you really can't get all the dust out using a small scope through the Mitrofenoff, and you're just going to leave dust behind and we'll get more stones. So I have a pretty low threshold for percutaneously accessing the bladder. I don't care if I get go through the augment or the native bladder when I percutaneously access it. I do these myself. I refer the upper tract stones to my endo partners, but I will, um, you know, access the bladder using an ultrasound guidance plus a scope through the Mitrofenoff. So we've got two ways to make sure we're getting in the right lumen, and then we'll use a, a needle and then a guide wire and then dilate over the guide wire. I find dilating with a balloon, uh, like an Ephraimax balloon, to be really frustrating because they usually have very thick fascia compared to the fascia people have around their kidneys. Um, so there's frequently a wasting of the balloon that won't release at the rectus fascia. So I usually use the Amplatz dilators to get into the bladder. 
and then I'll use a uh, and I'll use an offset nephroscope just like you would for a PCNL, and use a combination of the graspers that fit through that plus the ultrasonic lithotrite with the vacuum to help clean up all the dust at the end. Um, so that's how I deal with the stones. In regards to the stenostoma trophonoff, if it's a skin level stenosis, we'll first try to manage it with just putting a, a um, what we call a stent, but is really just a cutoff catheter in at night. So you can, you can buy a there's a plug that patients can buy on the internet. It's called an ACE plug, but you can use it for a metrophanoff. It kind of looks like a thumbtack where it's got a 12 or 14 French tube that goes into the metrophanoff. And then it's got a plug on the outside, like the thumb part of the thumbtack. And that keeps it from sliding in all the way. And they can leave that in overnight. Or you can just take one of their... Um, catheters that they normally self-cath with, cut it in half and just use the half that would normally go into the bladder, take that half and tie a half knot in it halfway down the shaft. So now that'll, that half knot will make it be shaped like an L. So we call it an L stent. Hmm. And then you put that in the channel and the knot in the L will keep it from falling into the bladder. And then you, uh, it's shorter because you've cut it short and put a knot in it. So it's only going to sit about two inches into the channel. And that'll keep the tip of the channel dilated overnight. And then you put a piece of tape on the abdominal wall to keep it from falling out. And they can put this L stent in every night before they go to bed, take it out in the morning. Or if the stenosis gets really bad, they, some of them leave the L stent in all the time, removing it only to self-cap. Now, if, they, um, if the stenosis is refractory to the L-stent or they get tired of the L-stent, we'll start with a skin-level metrophanoff revision, something like a YV plasty. And if the stenosis is deeper than that, then we're doing a laparotomy and usually replacing all of the channel with a new channel. So mm -hmm. it's not uncommon that I'll have, a say, a metrophanoff that which was an appendicovesicostomy that's no longer working in adulthood. We take that out and then we build them a Monty out of small bowel to be their new channel as an adult. And, and just broadly speaking, in your experience, um, how often do these patients that have had a metrophanoff, broad percentage, do you end up having to do some type of subsequent revision of various levels of complexity as they reach that transitional and adult age? Is it, is that a, like 10%, 20%, 50%? Around, yeah, I quote patients about a 25% lifetime risk of some stomal stenosis or channel stricture of their, of their efferent limb, of their um, catheterizable channel. Um, it's a hard percentage to quote because a lot of the data is from the pediatrics literature um, and then the adult literature has pretty short follow-up, but, but that's the percentage I go with based on uh, my interpretation of the papers that are out there. Sure. Well, Sean, I really want to thank you. Uh, really, my pleasure uh, and our pleasure to have you. A uh, really thoughtful way of how you think about this patient population. Uh, very practical advice for, for many of us who 
who see these patients, but but honestly don't do a lot of volume in them and knowing how to how to sort of manage these conditions, what to think about. Um, and I really appreciate you taking some time this afternoon uh, to join us here for this podcast. It's my pleasure. I really enjoyed the questions. Thank you. Uh, and for our audience, we thank you very much for your attention. Dr. Elliot uh, is an author for the core curriculum chapter on this topic. So obviously, if any of you have any greater interest in this, please uh, go ahead and you can do a deeper dive into it with uh, that chapter on the core curriculum. And again, visit us at auanet.org slash university. Uh, Sean, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye.